Welcome to Podagogies, a teaching and learning podcast. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. We're recording today from our homes in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. Joining us today is Dr. Shiri Pasternak, a Toronto-based researcher and writer. Shiri is the author of Grounded Authority, The Algonquins of Barrier Lake Against the State. She's the research director at the Yellowhead Institute and an assistant professor in criminology at Ryerson University. And we'll be speaking today about a pedagogical project that embeds a series of Indigenous guest speakers as part of the core curriculum of a course that Shiri teaches in Indigenous governance and justice. As a non-Indigenous educator, someone who's committed to decolonization and creating an anti-colonial curriculum, Sherry received a teaching grant to explore ways to center Indigenous analysis, experience, history, and epistemology in her classroom, and to do so in ways that take responsibility and build relationships with Indigenous peoples. This past year, she also surveyed her students about their learning experience, and today we're going to delve into some of what she's learned throughout that process. So Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Shiri, can you begin by telling us a little bit about the course you teach on Indigenous governance and justice and why it's important for you as a non-Indigenous educator to bring Indigenous speakers into this classroom? I was hired at Ryerson in the Department of Criminology to teach a stream called Indigenous Justice. And prior to coming to Ryerson, I was teaching at Trent University in the department or the school for Canadian studies. And so I was teaching a class, if you can believe it, that was called History of the Indians of Canada. So you could tell it was a class that had been taught for a long time and had always been taught by non-Indigenous instructors, but there was a sense in which it was grounded in Canadian history and in anti-colonial perspective on Canadian history. And so I felt comfortable teaching as a non-Indigenous person in that program um, because it was explicitly grounded in, you know, upending and disrupting colonial versions of Canadian history. So I had never really taught in a program or any courses that were called Indigenous Governance and Justice, which I think communicate that the perspective of the course is going to be primarily Indigenous. So even back when I was at Trent, I was inviting Indigenous speakers into the classroom in order to give students an opportunity to hear from Indigenous peoples themselves and to deepen their relationship with Indigenous people in the community there. You know, I had someone come in from Curve Lake First Nation for the first class to introduce them to the territory, for example. And so at Ryerson, um, when I started teaching in the Indigenous Justice Stream, I think the urgency became even stronger to really center Indigenous voices. In the beginning, I was inviting people into the classroom and meeting all kinds of challenges. So for example, I teach two sections of the class and the class is over 100 people and it was really hard to get one guest speaker to come to both classes and um, the guest speakers weren't very well integrated into the curriculum. And so that's why I first applied for a learning and teaching grant so that I could really start to focus more specifically on the pedagogy of inviting Indigenous people into the classroom. I'd also have the resources to be able to compensate people accordingly since they were committing a lot of time. I had read some Indigenous educators talking about the role of non-Indigenous people teaching on Indigenous subject areas and matters. And 
there is a lot of debate about whether or not non-Indigenous people should even be teaching this subject matter. But within the sort of school of thought that believes that there's a way to do this sensitively, to do this in a way that is politically, socially responsible, ethical, some of the suggestions really are around centering Indigenous people in the classroom through, for example, guest speaker series and um, making sure that the curriculum that you're teaching is primarily Indigenous thinkers and writers and leaders. So I had already been doing that, but the LTG grant really gave me an opportunity to think more deeply and carefully about what it means to responsibly bring Indigenous issues to teach Indigenous issues without having any lived experience as an Indigenous person. That's definitely a, a common theme that we, you know, we often hear non-Indigenous professors trying to think through what that looks like. You know, sometimes when we invite guest speakers into a classroom, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, but I think in, in particular in this case, it can kind of be a, a one-and-done activity. And I think when it is a one-and-done activity, it can be quite extractive in the way that it's, it's organized. You know, I wonder for you, when you're thinking about how you invited people and what you did in terms of some of the activities or assessments or, or things to, to make it a more meaningful and responsible integration of, of your guest speakers. The first thing that I did was I made sure that I reached out to people with whom I had a relationship and with enough resources to compensate them fairly so that the relationship started out with a respectful engagement. And so already I was better prepared to do that with the grant because I could offer people enough money that it actually really supported their ability to leave work and come into the classroom. And so I think that was the, the starting point so that it didn't feel like one-off, that it really felt like I was asking people to come and speak to their specific expertise that I knew, that I respected, that I'd worked with them in the past. And then when speakers came into the classroom, they would speak for about half an hour and then students had about half an hour to ask questions. And so there was a lot of time built in for real engagement. So students had an opportunity to learn directly from the speaker and the speaker could explain in greater depth the things that students were interested in. And then following that, we had five guest speakers and students could write reflection assignments on three of the guest speakers. And so they would have an opportunity to reflect on some of the following prompt questions, like what did the guest speaker say that disrupted or challenged some of the prevailing views that you held? Or how did they confirm some things that you believed? What will you do differently now that you've heard the guest speaker, their reflections on their experience? How does this challenge your understanding of Canada and what the meaning of colonization is today. And so those prompt questions, you know, really helped them to sort of metabolize or process the guest speaker presentations in a way that was really oriented towards transformation, taking an opportunity to really think about like, what was my prevailing conception? What was the assumption that I was going on? What were some of the like deeper unconscious biases that I was holding? What stereotypes had I been exposed to? Or like in the case, maybe for Indigenous students or students who had more experience or had spent more time thinking about colonization, 
sometimes the response was more about like, this was really affirming for me to hear these things. So it wasn't about what was being challenged. The transformation came in the opportunity to have someone speak in the classroom that reflected the kind of knowledge, experience, politics, ideas of self-determination and sovereignty that they themselves held. I, I really love uh, how intentional you were about that. And in particular, I know, you know, we had spoken a while back about the concept of reciprocity. And one of the things that you said that you had also done was taken some of these reflections that had really engaged in depth with uh, the way that the speaker had influenced their thinking and shared them back with the speaker. Do you want to say a little bit about why you felt that was important to do? First of all, I just want to acknowledge it was your idea to integrate the reflection assignments into the class. I was really coming at this with the intention of introducing guest speakers into the classroom, but without really the knowledge or the pedagogy around the importance of reflexivity and experiential learning and how to integrate that into the, into the curriculum. So I have to thank you for that. And one of the things that we talked about was around reciprocity and the idea that, you know, some of the reflection assignments that really strongly engaged with the questions could be then shared with the guest speaker in order to build some reciprocity so that speakers had an understanding of how their words and experience was impacting students that they spoke to. And so I did that throughout the year. And I didn't hear back from all of the speakers when I sent the reflections. Certainly the students were touched when I chose their reflections, but <laughs> there were a couple of speakers who were so moved by the reflection, so surprised to get them, and really appreciated deep integration of their own presentations into the class. Because I think, like you said, there is a kind of de facto, like one-off thing that happens where people are invited into the classroom. And I don't think presenters always get a sense of how their experience is not just sort of testimonial, that we are observing as witnesses, but is actually part of the theorization of the course content. And I think this gave them an opportunity to understand just how deeply and seriously we were um, integrating their own expertise into our understanding of Indigenous governance and justice in the class. I'm really interested in hearing more about what it was like having these speakers in the class and students' responses to them. But I want to backpedal just for a minute to think about how you actually got the students into the class. And I know that we've referenced earlier in our introduction and in this conversation, the grant, which afforded the possibility for people to come to the class. And as I was thinking about this, I was also thinking about the experiences of sessional instructors. Um, I've had experiences as a sessional where perhaps I'm not eligible to apply for grants. And so then it becomes very hard to bring people in, in a way that is fair and equitable. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, do you have any advice or anything you would offer to instructors who are looking to perhaps participate or try to sort of engage in this kind of classroom allyship but don't have the access to funding in, in order to do that? That's a great question. I feel really strongly that the evidence that we gathered through the follow-up surveys in this course should be used to advocate very strongly university-wide for permanent and sustainable funding for all faculty at whatever position they're in, whether it's sessional or tenured or 
any level, if you are in the classroom, you should have an opportunity and a fund that you can draw from in order to invite people into the classroom to speak to their direct experience when you're teaching on issues that affect them or are seeking to educate students regarding their experiences. Part of what we want to do with the findings of that survey is to advocate for precisely that kind of permanent funding so that anybody can access it. I was very lucky to be able to access it for two years in a row, but prior to that, I relied heavily on audio, visual media, multimedia like podcasts and films. And occasionally I would have people Skype into the class because that would take less of their time to do so. Or I would play videos of people being interviewed by other people. I used many, many different workarounds to try to make sure that Indigenous people themselves and their diverse political positions and epistemological frameworks and so on were part of the classroom curriculum. But I really do think, especially coming out of this class with all of the survey findings and all of the time I've spent doing exit polls with students, that there's a special importance to bringing people into the classroom that can't be easily replicated through other forms of multimedia. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, maybe one thing that's kind of crucial here is that part of the, the funding that you're describing, it goes toward that larger project of relationship building. I mean, I think sometimes we make the mistake of reducing funding to uh, covering a speaker's fee or something like that, but there's so much more that goes into relationship building than that, and so much value, especially in at this time when many of us are teaching online, so much value um, in doing things in person when possible. And sometimes it takes funding to get there. It does. One of the questions that we asked in the survey was actually specifically around whether students, whether it mattered to students, whether the guest speakers were synchronous or asynchronous, thinking about making sure that we had data on whether or not the students felt it was important to have in-person engagement. Otherwise, you know, the university could easily say, look, like, why don't you just videotape the presentation and then you could just replay that for the years to come. You don't need this funding. And it was an interesting response because they said the fact that it was recorded and we could watch it later was really helpful because that meant that they could really listen and catch things that they might have missed the first time and take time to appreciate things or concepts that were more difficult. But they also said they really appreciated having an opportunity to ask questions or even listen to other people ask questions or listen to me engage with guest speakers and ask questions because it gave them a sense of opportunity many students never had. Many students told me I've never met anyone Indigenous before and I've never had an Indigenous person in the classroom before. And so being able to connect and also to share their own experiences, for example, of being racialized and having adjacent experiences in the field of media, for example, around representation, which came up around one guest speaker in particular, was extremely valuable for them. Yeah, that's so, it's an interesting point. And, and to Chelsea's point too, what is the message we send when we think about decolonizing classrooms? If we're willing to just uh, take a visit, record it, and then use it year after year, it's almost a sense of commodification, right? You can see 
um, that there's nothing relational about that. And, and if the emphasis is relationships and relationship building, um, then, it, then it absolutely needs to be uh, something that's in person and funded every year and you know, consistently envisioned as a core part of, of the curriculum. I, I wonder as you were listening or was as you were getting feedback from students, did they highlight a sense of or, or an awareness in their reflections of that kind of the relational importance of being with the speakers? This year was different than other years because I ran the speaker series on Zoom. And so there was a different sense of connection that people are having over Zoom. So there was a sense of relationality for students by way of, I'm not sure if the word is modeling, but a lot of students talked about the fact and the importance of how different each of the guest speakers were and how that gave them an opportunity to reconceptualize and understand how Indigenous people move through the world in ways that they could deeply identify with. I, I mean, when you say, how did the students build relationality? I think one thing like we have to step back and realize is that one of the important things about having multiple guest speakers is that there are so many <laughs> different Indigenous nations. There's 60 in Canada. There are so many Indigenous experiences, thousands, as millions, as many Indigenous people are. Those are different Indigenous experiences. Certainly, colonization has created certain experiences or, or forms of violence and state harm that are similar across the board. But one of the important things that education scholars note about guest speakers and about the pedagogy of um, bringing Indigenous voices into the classroom is that educators tend to sometimes like bring in an Indigenous perspective and then flatten what Indigenous epistemology is into a pan-Indigenous framework or philosophy. And so the kinds of relationality that students build is like, it's really interesting because students, uh, I always talk to students so much at the end of class and they all talk about how the speakers all spoke to them differently and represented sort of different things to them. And some students really identify I had a dancer come in one year and one student used to be a dancer and that really touched her. And then I have one uh, speaker who often comes in who's a lawyer and students are so inspired by the kind of representation that she's bringing for Indigenous people. I think it's really the diversity of the speakers that allow students to build not just like one kind of relationality to Indigenous people, but this like multiple and complex and diverse form of understanding of Indigenous experience across sectors, across nations, across experiences. You know, I think it's like relationalities, I would say, that students um, have an opportunity to build through the class engagement. And the one thing that we were really missing this year was that my favorite part is after the guest speaker uh, finishes and we take a short break, it's just seeing the line form <laughs> around my desk. We didn't really have that this year in the same way, but that always really warms my heart. That's great. One of the um, experiences that you highlight in your course is that of someone who is part of a CBC podcast called Finding Cleo which is this long form journalism story about an indigenous child, 
Cleo Semeganis, who um, in the 1970s was taken by child welfare workers. And when I found out that you draw on that podcast in your class, I was immediately sort of tickled by that because I also use that podcast in my teaching. I teach in child and youth studies and I teach critical disability studies. And so there are some big intersections there, particularly in teaching students who may become professionally involved in child welfare work. And so we listen to this as a way of incorporating Indigenous content. And I think looking to long-form journalism is such a remarkable way to share stories with students. But you took this several steps further by actually bringing in a guest speaker. Can you tell us a bit about what happened when you did that and how students reacted? So I haven't brought in the guest speaker from Finding Cleo yet, but I've invited Johnny Samaganis to come and speak to my class next year, and he's agreed. He is one of the siblings of Cleo, who is obviously the center of the podcast. But this year, as part of the Finding Cleo assignment, what we decided to do was make podcasts about the podcast, um, where students pretended to be doing radio segments for CBC that commemorated 10 years after the Finding Cleo podcast, like what did we learn and what impact has it had? And then I shared 15 or 20 of the strongest podcasts with Johnny, who I'd been in communication with for some time, because I think we originally got in touch because I had been tweeting about developing curriculum materials for other educators who wanted to use Finding Cleo in the, in the classroom at the post-secondary level. I have already started to build a relationship with Johnny because we're both really invested in finding Cleo as an educational resource for people and for students in particular. And so now I feel really grateful that he's agreed to come and speak to my class. And when I told students that, you know, I was going to be sending them podcasts, they were just over the moon. You know, the opportunity for them to really connect the work and the thinking that they're doing in class to the people that they learn to care about through the podcast is a really emotional, I think, and moving opportunity for them because it removes the sort of abstraction of the classroom and places their thinking and their involvement and their commitment to these issues in the so-called real world, the world outside of the university. So I'm really excited to invite Johnny next year into the class and um, you know think about the best way in collaboration with him to bring to life and to animate things about the podcast that uh, that we want students to reflect more deeply on. I think that, you know, what you're describing is, again, that relationship building process that takes a couple years and is more than just inviting someone in to speak, but involves connecting in a bunch of different ways and actually processing things with each other before meeting the students and understanding that the students are going to have an emotional connection to this event as well. So thank you for highlighting that anticipatory side of what it means to bring guest speakers in. Yeah, and even even the idea that you're imagining that you'll be collaborating with Johnny to define what his participation will look like. It's an incredible way of, of trying to really think through a meaningful form of decolonization, right? And and it's it stands out so distinctly against the other option, which is the, um, I, I would love to have some Indigenous content. I'm going to invite an Indigenous speaker into my class one week for half an hour and check and move on, right? I just, I love that process you've established. One of the things that became so stark when the recent scandal unfolded around um, producer Michelle Latimer's identity as an Indigenous person, which turned out to be 
a fraudulent claim was that Indigenous people were talking a lot about ethics of accountability. They were talking about it in the context of journalism and filmmaking and storytelling, but I think it applies really equally to academia, where we think, oh, if a story is out there, it's ours for the taking. We can take it, we can teach with it, we can use it in whatever way pedagogically we feel you know, it makes sense for us. But I think in academia, we could really learn a lot from what Indigenous filmmakers and storytellers are saying now in response to that, which is that actually stories aren't just out there for the taking, you know? You know, Connie Walker did make that incredible podcast, Finding Cleo, and it's won awards deservedly so because it's so brilliantly told. But one of the things that really breaks the mold, even in that podcast, is just her level of attention and care um, to trauma-informed ethics of storytelling and her care about not re-traumatizing people and telling their stories and um, positioning herself in relationship to the family and maintaining those relationships. And I think that's why it's a, also a podcast that's so beautiful to teach with is because it really models for students how to handle these stories and what trauma-informed storytelling means and how sensitive we should be when we pick up these stories and when we carry them ourselves from having listened to them. And so, you know, part of this relationship building with Johnny, you know, he could have not wanted to talk to me. It's not, <laughs> I don't know if it's so much about me. I think it's really more about him. He's an incredibly generous person to engage with me and talk to me. And he, he was interested in hearing the podcast. He gave me feedback about, you know, his experience listening to them. And it was really hard for him. And I asked him, is it okay if I share, I'm going to do this podcast, is it okay if I share your reactions to listening to the podcast as well? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, tell them that for me, this was my family's story, but you can insert a thousand other names into that story. This happened mm. to so many people, and that's why I really want this story to be told. And so I think that's part of the pedagogy. It's part of the transformative way of understanding decolonization in the classroom as a political project. It's not just like a content mill for communicating information about colonization. To be a really meaningful project of decolonization, it really has to take seriously the political project of dismantling colonization and all of its ideological um, axes of power. So to even engage in that project, you have to be sensitized to what it means to, to do that work and to pick up that work. And I think that means really understanding what our role is as non-Indigenous people, being educated, getting angry, getting mobilized, but then being able to act in ethical and responsible ways when we do engage. You know, that's part of what we need to learn in the classroom too, I think. And which is really also the content of your class, right? I mean, your class is about governance and justice. And it sounds like even this, this structure in which you've organized this learning experience uh, in many ways, you know, reflects some of the principles you're trying to teach the students. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, I do think it's fair to say, and I, I just want to emphasize that it's been through a lot of trial and error. I didn't really know how to do that. It's taken me a few years to figure out how to do that, actually. Um, I started teaching Finding Cleo three or four years ago, and at first we would just listen to the episodes, and then we'd have a group discussion about it, and every week we listen to another episode and talk about it, but 
it took, you know, I think it was through a conversation with you, Curtis, where you were saying, well, what about a guided reading questions so that they can get a deeper sense of what you want them to learn from the podcast so that they can reflect more deeply. And so that changed my approach to the podcast. And I started doing weekly reflection questions. And then through their answers, we would sort of crowdsource the best questions for a final assignment. But it took many, many years to understand really like, you know, what, how to do it. What is experiential learning? What, what is reflection that's not just like, here's my opinion, but what is reflection that actually animates a transformative uh, politics for students and helps them feel like this is not someone else's problem. This is a national project in which we're all imbricated. Yeah, that's, that's so good. So often, you know, and especially in the last few years, as universities have pushed to to try to decolonize or indigenize, there's a lot of different language for what universities are trying to do, but there's so much pressure to do stuff so quickly. And, you know, even your story, you know, it's purposeful. It takes time. It takes building of relationships. It's not something that can just be done within a budget cycle. Uh, so I think it's such a valuable, uh, valuable model. When you're getting feedback from your students now, uh, and they're commenting on on what was transformative for them. Uh, wh- what touched you? What stood out to you as as um, you know really awesome takeaways from from the students and, and what they're reflecting on? That's a good question. I just recently had an opportunity to go through the survey that you helped me create, which was a Google Form exit poll on the Indigenous Speaker series, and I was really blown away by it. 66 out of, I think, 220 students responded. So it was a pretty high response rate. And, um, you know, some of the questions were straightforward, like, you know, rate your level of understanding before class and after class and um, seeing how students really felt much more literate and aware after the class was great. But then the questions about what struck you the most from the speakers and uh, what will you do differently or how has this changed you were really eye-opening. So for what struck you about the speakers, just sort of canvassing what students took away from uh, the presentations really made me realize what is sort of taken for granted for me because I work very closely with Indigenous communities and a lot of land defenders who are on front lines against resource extraction and development, for example, is that students were really starting to compare media representations of Indigenous people to those people that they met, that they really felt like they met and got to know during the presentations. And so, for example, Anne Spice, who's Tlingit and was on the ground on Wet'suwet'en territory during the RCMP invasion to defend Coastal Gaslink last year, was talking about the uh, traumatic violence that she experienced through the um, militarization of those lands. And many students were making the connection between the huge gap between what they had been reading about the conflict and what she was describing about the conflict and her experience of it, and suddenly becoming really radicalized about the police and the histories of police um, and their relationship to colonization and and, um, the removal of Indigenous people from their um, homelands and so on. So that was really striking people their belief in the law as a sort of fair and neutral system was really challenged by Promise Home Skinner, who was talking about the amount of structural racism that she experiences in the courtroom on a day-to-day basis, the kind of things people are getting put away for and 
injustice of how they're treated once they're behind bars and those cycles of violence. Students really uh, were touched and moved by Dr. Patricia McCocus's presentation. She went through Indigenous law from a Cree perspective and was showing them epistemologically sort of where their uh, responsibilities and obligations came from. And people were saying, you know, I'd heard that Indigenous people have different beliefs, but now I suddenly understand this whole legal system around it that I never really appreciated. So those specific reactions to the guest speakers was, I think, was really um, important to read because they were in the process of listening. They were really processing and I think deconstructing the kinds of knowledge that they had received through their own education prior to that moment. And they were processing it in ways that when we asked them, what kind of change do you see yourself involved in now? We ran the gamut from, I run an environmental group, and now I'm going to really reach out to Indigenous people for these fundraisers that we're holding and really try to center colonization as one of the aspects of environmental destruction that we want to foreground and other people were talking about how they had never seen Indigenous issues as being something that they could, first of all, they hadn't understood them, but many students said we didn't really know that there was anything we could do about it. We thought the government's, it was the government's responsibility and now we see that the governments and the police are the problem. Um, so I thought that was um, really important. And then one Indigenous person responded in the survey in a way that also I thought was a really critical that I didn't have a lot of Indigenous students in my class. My understanding and my experience has been that there aren't a lot of Indigenous students at Ryerson, but this student said that listening to Dr. McCocus talk about Indigenous law and the grounds of Indigenous jurisdiction and sovereignty based on those laws was something that she had always known, but she had never been secure in asserting that like in a classroom environment and she said she felt very empowered and she no longer felt ashamed. Sherry I really appreciate you taking us through this process and what you describe as a political process of getting guest speakers involved in the classroom from beginning to end from the funding to the students reactions. I think sort of overarching this conversation though is a larger question about how we might go about teaching students about Indigenous experiences from inside a university, given that universities themselves are so deeply implicated in the dispossession of Indigenous people and land. How do you sort of grapple with that question or, or what do you say to a question like that? I think it's a great question. I think it's one that we have to sort of point back at ourselves too as faculty members. You know, it's not just the students who need to grapple with that. I think it's also faculty members at a university called Ryerson, named after one of the architects of the residential school system who have to find a way to sort of challenge the um, colonial legacy of the university name while at the same time encouraging students to also challenge injustices where they where they see them. So this year in my class, actually the first assignment we had was they had to make a meme where they took this um, image of the Egerton Ryerson statue covered in pink paint, which was an action by um, Black Lives Matter Toronto at a demonstration and then activate it or bring it to life given the work we had been doing in class about Egerton Ryerson and also about the history of colonialism. And I just got 200 of the most brilliant memes that 
you know, took, for example, Ryerson's commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and juxtaposed them with Egerton Ryerson's legacy around residential schools. Um, a lot of them ran along those themes. And we talked about how to use those memes in order to support the efforts to change the name of the university and to remove the statue. Um, that didn't go that far, but you know, maybe next time we'll take it further. I really uh, think students should feel empowered by what they're learning and not feel like they have to accept the contradictions and the paradoxes of being in a university that supports that kind of you know, uplifting of someone who played such an important role in such a violent um, history. So I think that's a sort of ongoing, ongoing project. I love your, the creativity you have with your assignments. And, you know, you're, you talk there about wanting to empower students. You're, you're giving them an opportunity to use memes and social media to record podcasts in response to a podcast, to reflect deeply on, on you know, their, their experiences and their learning with guest speakers. The way you think of assessment, it's really, really terrific stuff. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, it's great. I thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've, I know you and I have talked before and I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time. So uh, Chels too, Chels was, uh, was thrilled when we, we had this. So thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also got to thank the, uh, the two people behind the scenes today uh, who produced this episode, production support specialist Chloe Hazard and instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell. And we also want to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast. 